worship, our praise unto you. Let it be a fragrant offering before you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks, Marcus. Thanks, John, for leading us this morning. Appreciate you guys. I'm always astounded every week as a former worship pastor, like the depth of bench that we have as a church, musicians, people who can lead worship and do it well. I'm so grateful for that. So grateful. We're in uh, 1 Samuel 17 this morning. Uh, we're going to get the first 23 verses of the chapter. And I, I just want us to remember that the Old Testament is an account of a nation. The New Testament is an account of a man, Christ Jesus. The creator of the universe became a man, and his appearance in time is the central event in human history. He died to purchase us. He's alive now because God raised him from the dead. And I believe that the most exalted privilege that any person can have is to know him, to have a relationship with him. And that's what the Bible is about. If you've got a paper Bible in your lap today or you've got an electronic version on your device, um, you, you need to know that it's a privilege to hold God's Word in your hand. And we need to be students of the Word and not just knowing it, but doing it. In the Old Testament, you've got six books specifically that deal with this monarchy, this time of kings that many of the prophets wrote about in the Old Testament. Um, you've got First and Second Samuel, and you have First and Second Kings. It's actually called one, two, three, and four kings in the Septuagint in the Old Testament that was translated into Greek by the seventy scholars. So, so just a quick rundown: First and Second Samuel details the life and ministry of Samuel, and then the kingship of Saul, which we're in now, and then David. And then when you read First and Second Kings in your Bible, it's detailing David's 40-year reign in more detail. It's, it's giving you the, the life and reign of Solomon, and then subsequently after Solomon, the divided kingdom, and then the exile of the northern kingdom to Assyria, and the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon years after that. And, and just a quick word about the kings in Israel. <clears throat> the prevailing teaching is... Uh, that the idea of a king over a nation of Israel was an afterthought. That somehow it's something that the people pursued and then God relented and, and then redeemed. But that is most assuredly not the case. Both Genesis 38 and the entirety of the book of Ruth detail in advance. They both anticipate David's genealogy. Uh, out of the tribe of Judah, which is the ruling tribe over Israel, and even hint at who is to come, who is the one true king, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Amen. So, so let me just give you a quick verse here, Genesis 49, as we're setting this up. Um, in Genesis 49, um, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, your, that, that's, that's idiomatic for your brothers, your father's sons, those are your brothers. Your, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Your own brothers are going to bow to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter, that's a king's scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him or until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
Binding, now this is interesting, verses 11 and 12, because this, this fast forwards way to, a, to, the, to the final manifestation of this ruler from the tribe of Judah. And 11 says, binding his foal to the vine and a donkey's colt to the choice vine. When did that happen? That's the Passion Week. That's Jesus. He washes garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So we, we, what we have here in Genesis 49 is the near and far of the king. There's going to be, David's going to be a prototype of the one true king who's coming. Way back in Genesis 17 and also in chapter 35, God had promised Abraham a dynasty that involved kings, but faithfulness to God was to be their top priority. And the fatal error of the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament is the same fatal error that we succumb to as 21st century Americans. It's called self-determination. I just want to do it my way. We've all got a little Frank Sinatra in us, right? I want to do it my way. And, and, and the, the people here in the text, are, they, you know, we've seen this as we've walked through 1 Samuel. They're clamoring for a king all the way back in chapter 8, verse 20, who will, who will go out and fight our battles for us. He'll, he'll protect us. He'll deliver us. And the Lord's like, guys, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm right here. So as I've been, as I've been studying this week, I, I'm looking at this text, this chapter, looking for sermon illustrations. Uh, to utilize, to set up our, our text this morning. And, and the process of looking for sermon illustrations this week was really depressing. Really depressing. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you find gems. You're like, oh man, that is such a good illustration for this truth. But almost everywhere I looked this week, I was continually running into phrases and phraseology like this. Overcoming your giants. Defeating your Goliaths. And things like that. And now, if you're, if you're sitting there this morning, you're not sure why that discovery is discouraging to me and should be to you as well. Uh, it's because the text of the Bible is not about us. It's not about us. Uh, none of the Old Testament narratives are about you and me and our struggles in this life. Every word, every story, all that compiles and comprises the Bible that you have in your lap is about the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. The Christ, the Son of God. It's not about you. It's not about me. So let's just drive that stake in the ground right out of the gate this morning and commit ourselves to keeping Jesus as the center when we read the Word. The Bible's about Him, not about us. And I, and I just want to say also that we won't get through the chapter this morning. It's just too long. There's too much to say. Um, the truth is we need, to, we need to tread slowly here in this chapter anyway in, in 1 Samuel 17 because our Sunday school teachers and our children's Bible books have painted many, unfortunately, inaccurate portrayals of this incident between David and Goliath, and we need to get this right. So we're going to take our time. It's going to take us two weeks here. So uh, 1 Samuel 17, we're going to go 1 to 23 this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can follow along. Verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and they were encamped between Socha and Ezekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul, you guys know, I practiced these words all week. 
is a lot. <laughs> and Saul and the men of Israel are like, man, he just rattles off like ancient Israeli. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So remember, right, Saul is no longer God's chosen vessel as king. He's still in the office of king, but God has, God has rejected him. He's still in the position, um, but it seems that in some way he senses this. He seems to know that this is the case. He's not engaging with, uh, in the war with the Philistines as directed as king, but he seems to be waiting around for some solution to present itself. And I think that this is a function of him knowing intuitively, at least sensing in some way, that the Spirit of God is no longer upon him as king. I think he just has this intuitive sense that if I engage, I'm going to get beat, we're going to be defeated, it probably cost me my life. And so he's just kind of hanging back. Um, and, and David is the solution to the problem, but not even David knows that at this point. Um, so, so a quick primer on the Philistines. Who are the Philistines again? Well, the Philistines are a group of people who migrated from southern Europe or Greece, that, that uh, area, uh, down to the coast of the Aegean Sea around the 12th century before Christ. Uh, and it's now an area held by Israel and shared with Gaza and Lebanon and Syria. Now, I know I, I said B.C. <laughs> so you're like, it's B.C.E. No, it's not. I know everybody uses B.C.E. before the common era these days, but I absolutely refuse because it's before Christ. He's the one who divided time with his coming into the world. I refuse to say BCE. Um, anyway, just take that for what it's worth. Eventually, the Philistine people assimilated into the Persian Empire, and uh, some archaeologists went through some burial sites of the Philistine people and gathered DNA from burial sites. And what they found is that it's very similar to the DNA of people living in Lebanon today. 59, almost 60% of whom are Muslims. They, the, the Philistines were a very aggressive people, and their descendants are still largely a very warlike people because they worship a very warlike God, little g, God, Allah. Um, but the Philistines occupied territory southwest of Israel, down on the Mediterranean Sea, between the Med and the Jordan River. So the Israelites frequently refer to the Philistines as uncircumcised. You'll see that all through Judges and for Samuel, which means at, at that time, remember that the basis of the relationship with the Israelites, with God, was this covenant. And one of the ways you demonstrated covenant if you were a male was circumcision, right? So that's the old covenant. So they talk about the Philistines. They're not part of that covenant. They're uncircumcised, which would become like a, an insult to other people. They're not God's chosen people, and they're to be strictly avoided as a contaminating evil influence. And, and so today, even today, you might find this sometimes, and I try to say it often, um, but you'll, you'll hear uh, Philistine used as an epithet to refer to an unrefined person, right? You uncultured Philistine. If I ever say that to you, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm messing with you, okay? You uncultured Philistine. So that's, that's who they, these people are. So verse 3, we keep going here, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, 
And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. So, so this is like the pre-fight, you know, in this corner, you know, kind of detailing who the opponents are. And according to the measurements of the day, Goliath was somewhere between 9 foot 6 inches and 9 foot 9 inches. I wish I could show you, like, in comparison to me, how tall. I can't even reach that high. You can go online, and you're going to find a lot of commentaries. And I don't know why secularists write commentaries about the Bible, because they don't believe it. But you're going to find a lot of commentaries and secularist opinions about whether Goliath was really a giant or really that tall, and on and on, as mortal men cast their doubts and aspersions upon the Word of God and upon God's ability to communicate accurately. Because that, let's, let's be honest, that's really what's in doubt here. That's what's being uh, doubted is the existence of God and his ability to accurately communicate history. It's always astonishing to me that mere mortals will go to correct God's word. But um, Goliath's coat of mail weighed 125 pounds alone. Just the coat of mail. And, um, and, and so it says the tip of his spear that he carried weighed 15 pounds. That's just the spearhead, 15 pounds. A shot put, if you've, if, you've run, if you've done track and field in high school, you've held a shot put, that's 16 pounds. It's only one pound heavier than the tip of Goliath's spear. Now, wearing all that armor, wielding those weapons would require tremendous strength. And just stop and think about how this looks from the Philistines' perspective for a moment. They're in a battle with mostly equal numbers. Uh, if you leave God out of the equation, um, and an army with chariots, the Philistines, is always going to prevail over the army without chariots. It's just it's a technological advantage to be able to run people down in the open plains with chariots and, and slay them and as they go is much better than to fight on foot. So it becomes strategic to lure the Philistines into battle environments which render their advantage with the chariots moot. If we can get them in the hills, if we can get them up into the foothills of the mountains where the wadis run, a wadi is a dry riverbed in the summer and a raging torrent in the rainy season, if we, if we can get them up there, that'll kind of equalize things a little bit. They'll have to fight on foot. They can't fight in their chariots. And so uh, that place, you know, you go up into the foothills, that's where they've, they've moved the battle. The Israelites are trying to be more strategic because um, the, the people of the plains who have the chariots are choosing now. This is telling, by the way, because the, the people with the chariots are choosing to engage in the foothills, which tells you something a little bit about their confidence level in this. They're, they're choosing to leave the chariots at home and come up into the foothills of the mountains. This indicates greater courage on their part and what the, the Jews called chutzpah. Do you know what chutzpah is? It's audaciousness. Okay? So from the Philistine perspective, Yahweh appears to be a God who, yeah, he saved them in the past, but now that we have a superior fighting force with descendants of the Nephilim, which we'll talk about in a moment, we're more powerful than you and your God. And commentator F.B. Meyer observed, the impotence of the Israelites made Goliath still more defiant. Like they're just sitting around for 40 days. They don't want to make a move. So how long can this go on? If you're a soldier, you're an Israeli soldier, you're kind of wondering, like, what are we doing here? What are we doing? The enemies of God's people have giants on their side. This looks bad for Israel. 
But praise God, looks can be deceiving. Verse 8, he stood and he shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If, if this helps you to picture Andre the Giant saying this, just do that in your head this morning. If, you, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So, so now we've got this wager. And if you're here this morning and you can hear the VeggieTale voices as we read this, that's even better. It's even better. Those are some awesome cartoons. Our kids were little. But just FYI, uh, they've gone woke and embraced critical race theory, so stay away from Phil Vischer and the stuff they're putting out now. Sorry. You've got to make those disclaimers these days. Right? Goliath, Goliath is indignant at what he sees. For 40 days, these armies have lined up against each other and stood opposite each other with this little valley, this ravine in the middle, and no one has dared step forward for the nation of Israel. And Goliath is just simply too intimidating. But again, this, this is the fundamental reoccurring problem for the Israelites. God's people keep lapsing back into looking with their eyes at the natural instead of kneeling in humility and prayer to plead for supernatural deliverance. They're just, they just forget about God almost. In verse 10, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the fear is palpable here. Here's a descendant of the Nephilim, which, which again, we're going to talk about in just a sec. He's defying God's people. He's defying the king. He's defying God himself. The gall of the giant of Gath is on display. And with every day that passes, with no action from the Israelites, he's becoming more and more emboldened. This fear is the very same fear that the Jews experienced when they left Egypt and had been led through the desert by God himself. Did you know back in the Exodus wanderings when they got to the promised land, they faced giants. They faced giants. Do you remember this, Genesis 14? Well, I'll just I'll give, you, give you a couple of verses here. We'll go back to Genesis 14, 5 through 7. In the 14th year of Kedor, Laomer, the king, uh, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephraim, Rephraim is a, a tribe of giants. In the uh, Ashtaroth <laughs> Karnaim, these, these place names, you just, just bear with me. The Zuzim in Ham, those were giants. The Emim in that place in verse 5, those were giants. The Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran to the border of the wilderness. They turned back and they came to El Mishpat, that's Kadesh, and they defeated all the country of the Amalekites. Those were giants. And also the Amorites, those were giants. All of those people groups had giants living among them. So let me just give you a little primer on these groups. The Amorites, descendants of Noah's grandson Canaan, you'll find in the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament that among these were giants of the Amorite people. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus confirms this. These were the inhabitants seen by the 12 spies that Moses sent into the promised land. Do you remember the story? There was no dissension among the 12 spies about what they saw in their report. 
They all agreed 100% on what they had seen in the promised land. All 12 reported the same findings. All 12 confessed to there being giants in the land, such as, and the quote is, we were like grasshoppers to them. The only difference was Joshua and Caleb knew that God was bigger than the giants and that with God's leading, they could take the land. It's not going to be a problem. We've got God. God's on our side. So there's no dissension about there being giants. Some of you are like, oh, this is getting weird. Giants? Conspiracy theories? Oh, we, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. Additionally, in the Old Testament, we see the Amim in Deuteronomy 2, as large and numerous as the Anakim. The Zamzumim, also called Zumis, <laughs> listed in, I just made that up. Genesis 14, in the land of Ham, from whom they were descended, one of the, one of the sons of Noah. The Rephaim, um, which is the most commonly used term in the Bible for giants. And all these are descendants of the Nephilim. N- now, that's back in Genesis 6. And the root word for Nephilim is nephash in Hebrew. It means fallen ones. And all these are descendants of the Nephilim. This incident in Genesis 6, whereby the Nephilim came to be, took place before the flood of Noah, which is largely what brought the flood about. Genesis 6, 1 and 2, and also verse 4, when man began to multiply upon the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Sons of God are not humans, daughters of men. The sons of man would be humans. Sons of God is a different thing. In fact, you'll see that used consistently about angelic beings, okay? Now, how this works, don't ask me. I can't give you the how that, how it, I'm just telling you what the scripture says. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. We read mighty men of old, men of renown, and we go, yeah, that's not the way the Bible paints this picture. It's evil. It's evil. It's corruption. Of, of, of humanity. And, and I'm going I'm to walk you through this, and let me just tell you right now, if you come to a different conclusion about this issue in the Bible, it's okay. It's okay. No pressure. But I just want to tell you what, what I read here in the Bible as it relates to this passage in, in, in 1 Samuel. The phrase, they took wives, the, the Nephilim took wives, any that they chose is cleaned up for our first cent- 21st century sensibilities. They took wives means they committed fornication and had offspring. And they weren't looking for marriage counseling in year two. They weren't following up with somebody, you know, hey, well, we just can't seem to get along. That's, that's not what happened. They're, they're, you know, before I get emails and texts, scripture, scripture tells us in John 8, 17, your, in your law it is written the testimony of two people is true. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says every charge is established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I, I, I bring that to you so that I can establish what the Bible's saying because Peter writes about this. Peter writes about the Nephilim. Jude writes about the Nephilim. The book of Genesis details the account. The Old Testament is replete with accounts of these descendants of the Nephilim. This was Satan's attempt to be God and to corrupt the image of God in man. When you start messing with human DNA, you're playing God. And, and we're doing that today with splicer technology, changing the fundamental building blocks of humanity. Um, transhumanism is a real thing. If you haven't looked into that, um, God's not going to put up with that for long. He didn't in the Old Testament. He's not going to now. But back to the giants all over the earth. 
one conspiracy theory at a time. Um, even in more recent history, even in the U.S., I'll give you two examples of reports of um, giants. You ready for this? Two for the sake of time. You do your homework. Come to your own conclusions. Here's number one. Buffalo Bill Cody, in his autobiography, wrote the following words about a legend recounted to him by the Sioux Indian tribe. He says, quote, It was taught by the wise men of the tribe that the earth was peopled with giants that were fully three times the size of modern men. They were so swift and powerful they could run alongside a buffalo, take the animal under one arm, and tear off a leg and eat it as they ran. So vainglorious they were, so full of themselves, that because of their own size and strength, they denied the existence of a creator. When it lightened, they proclaimed their superiority to the lightning. When it thundered, they laughed. This displeased the great spirit, and to rebuke their arrogance, he sent a great rain upon the earth. The valleys filled with water, and the giants retreated to the hills. The water came up the hills, so the giants sought safety on the highest mountains. Still the rain continued, and the waters rose, and the giants, having no other refuge, were drowned. That's interesting. If there really was a worldwide flood, what would the evidence be? Huh? Right? This, this, this. So this is what the Sioux Indians said to Buffalo Bill Cody. If that sounds familiar, it should. It's the same detailed in, in Genesis regarding Noah and the great flood that he poured out his wrath upon the earth. So here's number two. Listen to Abraham Lincoln, his writings and musings when he was at Niagara Falls in the autumn of 1848. He'd been campaigning for the presidential candidate, Zachary Taylor, in Massachusetts. And on his way back home to Illinois, he, he wanted to visit Niagara Falls. He found the site so impressive that he began to sit and write about it in his journal. And his unfinished meditation on the falls probably dates around the end of September 1848. Here's what he said. <clears throat> As he's looking at Niagara, he says, It calls up the indefinite past. When Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his maker, then, as now, Niagara was roaring here. Now listen to this. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have, grazed on, have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. That's Abraham Lincoln saying there are burial mounds all over the country filled with the bones of giants who have, they, they've probably seen Niagara just like we're seeing Niagara right now. He goes on to talk about mammoths and mastodons, long dead, um, but just let that settle in. Let that rock your world a little bit, okay? We're going to leave this for now and, and deal with David for the rest of our time this morning. David was the son of an Ephrathite, of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. So we're getting the backstory again. We've already got some of this. He's giving it to us again. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Jesse was old and advanced in years. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. And David was the youngest. So the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And the first thing I want to say to you about this section is David is not a child. He's not a little boy. From all I can gather from the scripture, it seems that this myth has grown up from a casual reading of the text or some misunderstandings 
about what this section of Scripture actually reports. David's brother Eliab was recognized by Samuel as the one with the most impressive stature, like Saul, remember, and assumed he would be the one God would choose to be king. And maybe this is where they get the notion that David must have been small. But after studying this week, I don't think he was. In fact, I think there's good reason to think David was larger, was a large young man when he fought Goliath. Back in chapter 16, one of the king's servants suggests that David be the one to play for Saul. And listen to the description given about David. He was skillful in playing. He's already, in verse 16, considered a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a handsome young man. The Lord is with him. He's not a little boy. He's a full-grown man who's already schooled in the art of war. So David's already established as a valiant warrior at this point. Verse 21, Saul makes David his armor bearer. Remember what that means. David carries the shield in front of the king. He carries all the extra weapons, and his job is to defend the king on the battlefield. You don't give that job to a little boy. David's the armor bearer. And and yes, Jesse, dad, is telling David to take his brother some food, but we need not assume that David lived at home and occasionally went to Saul to be his armor bearer. I think the opposite is the more likely scenario. David lived with Saul and was his armor bearer most of the time, and then only occasionally he went back to help dad with the sheep. I think there's more evidence in the second half of the chapter, which we'll get to next Sunday if Jesus tarries. But just hang on to this, okay? So is there any significance to 40 days here? Because this has been going on for 40 days, right? Let me just give you that real quick. The number 40 symbolizes a period of testing, trial, or probation. And it's all through the Bible. Moses was uh, Moses's life divided into 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert before God selected him to lead his people out of slavery. Uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights on two separate occasions receiving God's law. Uh, when they sent the spies into the promised land, it was for 40 days to investigate the land um, that God had promised as an inheritance. And the prophet Jonah warned ancient Nineveh, for, he did it for 40 days and nights, that destruction would become because of their sin. You go to Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to symbolize Judah's sins. 40 is, excuse me, it's all over the Bible. It's a significant number of preparation or testing. And in this case, David's about to participate and precipitate some action in the text now that these 40 days are coming to a close. There's about to be some action. Verse 17, so Jesse says to David, his son, take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of thousands. See that your brothers are well and bring me some token from them. Just take, take these supplies and gather some news. But God has other plans for David that involve putting an end to this conflict. And so we'll wrap up here, 19 down to 23. Saul Uh, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment where the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words he had spoken before. And David heard him. So Saul's still struggling. 
with God's rejection of him as king and feeling insecure. But David is operating in faith and no small amount of righteous indignation. He is deeply offended by the Philistines' words against the living God, as we're going to see as we go forward in the rest of the chapter next Sunday. But as we stop here and consider how to apply this to our lives as followers of Jesus, there is one essential truth that has to be stated before any other truths are stated in the application of this to our hearts this morning. Your problems are not Goliath, and you are not David. We are so prone to that kind of thinking. Put ourselves in the role of the hero. And then when things don't work out quite the way we had imagined, we're, we're upset with God. We're confused. We're like, well, I'm, I'm David. He's like, no, you're not. You're not David. David was David. You're not David. David is a type of Christ. David is a picture of one who is to come. David is a forerunner and a forebearer of Christ. This episode in our Bible is not given to you so that you can put yourself in David's role and set up your problems to be Goliath who goes down for good. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the rightful king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Goliath, if you, if you, want, to, if you want to make Goliath something, Goliath is sin that you can't ever atone for in your flesh. Goliath can be Satan, who's your enemy, who's way more powerful than you in every way, according to the flesh. You want to do that? That's fine. You still need Jesus. You can't get away from the need for Jesus. This is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. You've got 66 books in that Bible of various genres. Did you know you've got over 40 different authors from a variety of backgrounds and occupations? That, that Bible was written over 1,500 plus years, involving 10 civilizations on three continents, penned in three languages, and yet one unified story of redemption. One unified story of redemption. The Bible is all about Jesus. Luke 24. I love this passage. You know, this is where we get our name as a church from Luke 24. Jesus, is a, he appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking, they're traveling. This stranger comes up to them. They don't know that it's Jesus. He's incognito. And he begins to talk to them. And as they're talking, um, they're confused. They can't understand why these things happen to Jesus. Well, he was crucified. He's, he's dead. Why, why did this happen? And, and Jesus in disguise starts to delineate all the things from the Old Testament about himself. And the text says here in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, if you, if you just met some person and you're walking along having a casual conversation, they go, dude, you're dumb. <laughs> foolish one. You're probably a little offended. You probably kind of chest comes out a little bit. Whoa, 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 whoa. I feel like Jesus said this more than once. And maybe this was a clue. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He took the word of God and began to teach them. Did you not understand that this was about the Messiah? Did you not understand that David is a type of Messiah? 
guys, clue in, clue in, right? And Jesus is lovingly, gently, firmly showing them. I would give anything to have the audio from that Bible study. In John's gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, you guys search the scriptures daily because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is them that bear witness about me. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I mean, he just goes for the jugular. So you get Bible study, you got like eight Bible studies a day, and you don't know that that's about me. A focused, so, so like a focused bibliocentric view at the 30,000 foot level looking down would look something like this. The Old Testament is anticipation. The gospel's manifestation. The book of Acts is all about proclamation. And then you read the epistles because they give you an explanation. And then the revelation is all about the consummation. And from start to finish, the Bible is this epic story about our King Jesus. He's on every page of Scripture, whether we see it or not. It's all about him. The Bible is all about Jesus. And that Bible tells us, as born-again Christians, that we are to live our lives by faith in the Son of God. Amen? Amen. We live our lives by faith in the Son of God. Now, this sounds so good. When pastors say this, and then people go, amen, it sounds so good. We're to live our life by faith in the Son of God. Amen, pastor. Preach, pastor. It sounds so good and so right, but every single one of us has that internal check in our spirit when we start talking about living and walking by faith. What is this going to cost me? What is it going to cost me? It's in there because we know that living by faith means we can and will likely end up in difficult circumstances that are beyond our ability to control. See, when we walk by faith, our hearts know that comfort is no longer the chief aim of our lives. That What I'm doing every day, what I'm thinking about is not how do I make my life more comfortable, it's how do I impact the kingdom. We're giving up comfort. When we walk by faith, we're saying that Jesus, uh, we're saying to Jesus that we're, we're willing to be misunderstood. We're willing to look like fools and all while giving up the illusion of being in control of our lives. We're saying to God that we're willing to let him take us to places we've never been to do things we've never done. That's scary for us. That's scary. When we walk by faith, we're fundamentally giving ourselves over to his kingdom agenda at the expense of our own agendas. So I'm laying my agenda down in order to help in some way walk, walk in your spirit and to fulfill your kingdom agenda over here. That's, that's the heart that was in David. And that's the heart that God wants us to have, a, a heart after his own heart. From that perspective, from the perspective of the world, you know, you may just end up playing the part of the fool. You understand this, right? That when you begin to walk by faith and walk in obedience to Jesus, it's, it's highly likely that people who don't know Jesus will look at you and go, that's just dumb. That makes no sense. What are those foolish Christians doing? You need to know that up front. I want you to know that. Because that'll happen. It'll happen to you. You look like you're playing the fool. I mean, think about it. Let's just go back to the, to, to the Old Testament. There's Noah building an ark for some coming flood when it's never even rained on the earth. Dude, what are you doing? 
building this huge barge in your front yard in the driveway? There's kooky old Abraham clinging to the promise that he's going to be a father of many nations, and he's 100. It's like, dude. There's Moses standing before the Israelites in the wilderness telling them, listen, guys, you're going to eat so much meat that you're going to hate meat. You're going to be disgusted. And they don't even know where that's going to come from. Like, do you have like a meat locker somewhere? Like, what are you talking about? Joshua, marching around the walls of Jericho, just like God had told him, trusting that the, these walls are so thick that they have chariot races on top. They're just going to fall down. All we got to do is sing. What? And then here's David facing down a giant. I tell you what I long for. I'm longing to hear people saying, there go those crazy Christians again in our community trying to tell people Jesus saves some such crazy nonsense. I long to hear that. I long to hear about there goes those church people meeting needs in our community again. Oh, I long to hear that. There they go again, those crazy Emma's Road church people. Because nobody knows how to say our name, right? I think our, the summer t-shirts this year just say Emma's Road. Just, just, we're just going to own it. Emma, Emma's church. There go those Emma's Road church people walking around town praying, sharing the love of Jesus with people. Talk about foolish in the eyes of the world. There go the people of God again, living by faith and not by sight. Men and women, we either live by faith in the Son of God or we do not. There's no middle ground. Serving God is not a guarantee of an easy life. I'll tell you quickly a story of the first two Scottish missionaries that were ever sent to the New Hebrides Islands. They landed, and the day that they landed, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. Very same day. And after that, you can imagine, it was pretty difficult to get people to go sign up as missionaries to the New Hebrides Islands. But this guy named John Patton, he just had a passion for the lost, and he agreed to go. And there were a lot of well-meaning people in the church who tried to dissuade him. One elderly man in particular came to him and warned John. He just said, listen, if you go there with the gospel, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And Patton replied, in love, but with a holy firmness. He said, I just confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it doesn't make any difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection, the body will rise just as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I don't know if you, if you know this, but 10 out of 10 people die. You and I are part of the ultimate statistic. That was never not the end game for us, unless the rapture happens. And I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. After 15 years of fruitful ministry in the New Hebrides, Almost everyone on the island of Aniwa, where Patton ministered, had received Christ and been converted to Christianity. See, we're called to a life of service, even if it means giving up everything. Because Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
The Apostle Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. This requires tremendous courage and strength. You've got to be willing to be misunderstood and even abandoned by your friends. You must be willing to give up any semblance of control over your life that you thought that you might have had. You've got to be willing to look like a complete fool in the eyes of the world and possibly even your friends and family. Walking by faith and not by sight requires you to go to places you don't know as God leads you in in walking in obedience. And here we see an example in David, a man after God's own heart. Remember, back to chapter 16 and Samuel being commanded by God to anoint someone in Saul's place since God had rejected him as king. The Lord reminded Saul that while man looks on the outward appearance, God's looking directly at the heart of the person. In God's economy, it's always character over appearance. It's always willingness to be used over being qualified in some way. And as, and as we sit here this morning in our comfy theater chairs, week after week, my hope for each one of you, especially young people in the room this morning, is that there's a stirring in your heart when you hear these things. And you would say to yourself in these moments, I want to be a man or woman like that. I want to be used by God to impact and to build his kingdom. That's my prayer for you this morning. Lord Jesus, we just come to you in abject humility again. And we confess that our best efforts to please you, our best efforts to obey you, still fall short of your standard of, of perfect, glorious perfection. We thank you for the grace that you pour out on us. We thank you for your mercy. And we ask, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts and we would, we would begin to see, we'd be driving through town and see somebody from Emmaus Road standing on a corner sharing the gospel. We'd be driving through Emmaus Road, uh, driving through Stanwood and see people with prayer walking. You would start to stir your people in these days that we would we move beyond the four walls of the church and into the community with the gospel and the power of the Spirit that we would walk by faith and not by sight, Lord. And that's our prayer today. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Well, if you want to walk by faith and not by sight, you've got to be willing to be misunderstood, even abandoned at times. You've got to be willing to give up any semblance of control of your life that you thought you might have had, willing to look like a complete fool in the eyes of the world and possibly even your friends and family. Walking by faith and not by sight requires you to go to places you don't know as God leads you to walk in obedience and faith. But our faith is not a blind faith. It's a faith that's founded on the rock of Christ Jesus. So go in confidence. Literally, that word means go with faith. Go in confidence and walk in obedience and let the gospel be in your mouth and let the gospel be on your tongue as you love people made in the image of God. May it be that we all see our Lord soon, but until then, let us be found faithful. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.